This morning, I'm really excited about having this opportunity to be able to preach again. You know, we preachers sort of get things on our hearts, and it's always good when God gives us an opportunity, and I especially appreciate Richard's generosity. I'm going to be talking about generosity today, his generosity of sharing the pulpit. One of the things that I am passionate about in whatever years God leaves for me on this earth, I am passionate about the gospel. And as we've been studying through the book of Acts, the book of Acts is about the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is bringing the gospel to bear upon the hearts and minds of people. And part of our strategic vision, in fact, at the very heart of our strategic vision, is a deep desire to discover and rediscover the wonder of the gospel. Now, let me say why I say that, discover, rediscover. I've found after 42, 43 years of ministry, there are still people in our churches who really don't understand the gospel. We don't assume everybody does. There are other people who have misunderstood it. And there are some of us who've been around for a long time. You know what? We've forgotten it. That's why Martin Luther said, he said, the gospel is for Christians. We constantly have to preach it to ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the gospel, and we're going to talk about an aspect of the gospel, uh, and this is really what I'm excited about, because it's about generosity. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and it's uh, amazing, when you go through the book of Acts, you know, that's the formation of the early church, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work, Jesus has died, he's been, he's raised from the dead, he has ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and now the, the apostles go out and they begin to take the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the world. And it's exciting. The book of Acts is filled with excitement, and you sense it. And we've seen, as Richard's taken us through this, we've seen how powerfully the Holy Spirit was at work, how he was changing people's lives and how the early church operated, how the people there devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to power. And a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 4, where we saw how believers were of one heart and how they generously shared all that they had. They actually brought money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's my question this morning. What made all that possible? What was happening as we go through the book of Acts? And I'll tell you what it was. It was the gospel at work in the heart and lives of people. You know, Paul says the gospel is the power. Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You know what that word means, power? It's taken from a Greek word, dunamis, that means dynamite. The gospel blows up things. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And it really does. It comes into your life and it, and it, it changes you. It, it blows up things. Things that you thought were so important, it just sort of blows them away because then you begin to get a whole new perspective of life. You begin to see things differently. You begin to hear things differently. And your life goes through radical change. These people were filled with awe and God was doing great things among them. Now, let me just stop here one second. Don't you long for that? Wouldn't you love it if you were to see that in our church and you were to see it in your life that you're so captivated by the wonder of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, that your life is being radically changed? Well, you see, that's what the gospel is all about. And so today we're not going to go in Acts, but we're going to come to some of the churches 
that were recorded in the book of Acts. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to Second Corinthians chapter 8. And what Paul is doing here, he's going back to some of the churches that he founded, that he started. And they were churches, he, he's going to talk about the churches of Macedonia. And you would remember some of those churches. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. As you're reading through the book of Acts, you read about what Paul did there. How he planted those churches, how he established elders in those churches, and what happened around those churches. That's all in the book of Acts. But I want to look at an example today of what happens when the gospel comes in its power in our lives. And I'm going to tell you up front what it does. When the gospel comes to power in your life, it causes you to be generous with your life. Generous. And in fact, I would hope our church understands that. We are to be generous. We're to be generous. And here's the great example of that taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, Paul has been talking in his first epistle. He wrote a chapter in the first epistle about the subject of giving. And now today, in this second, cha- in second epistle that he wrote, he devotes two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, to this subject. And so I want to begin reading in chapter 8, the first nine verses. We'll touch on some verses in both these two chapters. And I would encourage you today at some point, go home and read the two because they belong together. This is God's Word, Second Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want, you, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? And this morning, Lord, as we open this scripture and we see the impact of the gospel, oh God, we long for that today, a fresh gospel awakening. Open our hearts and minds this morning and let us see the wonders of the cross, the beauty of Jesus, the generosity of our Savior. Help us see it. 
For we make this prayer in his name. Amen. Now, it's interesting. As you look at, Paul does what we preachers often do. He wants to illustrate. And so he's choosing as an illustration these churches in Macedonia. Now, what's fascinating is when you read the opening verse, the first couple of verses there. And now, brothers, we want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And look at this. Two characteristics. The first one is this. Look at the words. Out of their severe trial. That's the first one. And then you come on down a little bit later and you see their exceeding poverty. You see, there were two characteristics of these churches. The first characteristic was this. They suffered great affliction. Severe trial. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. I have an idea. It was probably related to persecution. If you remember, the early churches were severely persecuted. They underwent terrible persecution, terrible persecution. And for most of us, we can't relate to that. A few weeks ago, we had uh, some folks here who were from Egypt. And to hear their stories of persecution, and you look around the world, their brothers and sisters we had this morning who are literally dying for their faith. That's hard for us to understand. People who are being imprisoned, tortured. For their faith, it is just as much true today as it was back then. Probably that's what's going on. It was a time of persecution. These churches suffered great affliction. But here's the second characteristic. They also lived in deep poverty, extreme poverty. Now, it very well could have been that their poverty was related to the persecution. uh, Because that was not uncommon. That still happens today, by the way. A few years ago... uh, for, for about 30 years of my ministry, I was highly involved in international missions and chaired a, a mission board of a fairly large uh, mission organization, traveled all over the world. I had opportunity to work with our missionaries. And I was in a country in North Africa, and one of our missionaries took me out and introduced me to a young man whose name was Yusuf. I've never forgotten him. Yusuf. Yusuf told me his story. It seems that he had become a Christian He came to understand the the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, gave his life to Christ. And it didn't take long for word to get out about his conversion. He went home one day to come to his house, and he found as he came to the house, all of his, everything he owned was put out on the street. And as he was coming up to the house, thoroughly confused, his father came out angry. And yelling at him, you infidel, you infidel, Uh, you are no longer my son, and this is no longer your house. Get out of here. Yusuf said he didn't know anywhere to go, so he went back to the little shop where he worked. It was down in in a place called Medina. It was a little shopping area, very primitive. But he worked there at a little shop where they tanned hides. And when he got to that shop, he got to the front door, and the owner came running out, and angry as he could be, pointing his finger at him, said, you infidel, you infidel, you no longer work here. Don't think that doesn't happen around the world. It's happening today. These early churches were going through times of severe persecution, affliction, and as a result of that, they lived in deep, deep poverty. Now, that's what's happening with these churches. Now, let me stop right here and, and l- let you see key to the text. 
the operative word in the passage I read is the word grace. Now go count it in those nine verses. You're going to find that word used four different times in the text. Four times you'll find the word grace. And as you look at that word grace, what you're going to do is you're going to see how that grace impacts us. God's grace came to bear upon them. It changed their lives. It came upon them in their great affliction and deep poverty. The grace of God came and it was powerful. It changed them. It changes their natural attitudes and affections because the gospel always produces change. It changes our perspective. I'm learning to use language and I'm trying to, as I'm teaching gospel theology uh, in, in, in leadership in our church and in other places, I'm, I'm using the language, the lens of the gospel. We have to learn to look through the lens of the gospel because when you look through the lens of the gospel, things change. You see things differently because the gospel changes the way we view things. That's what's happening here. Now, here, follow with me. So here's, here are these churches living in, in great affliction and deep poverty and what happens The grace of God comes to bear upon them, and two things result. Here's the first one. In the midst of their affliction, God produced within them inexpressible joy. Do you see it? Look at the passage. You see it in the passage? Inexpressible joy. In the middle of their afflictions, in the middle of their persecution, in in the middle of tragedies in their lives, they had joy. I was in India a number of years ago, and I was actually taken to a, a little, it was actually down a slum, and I went into a church service, and when I went into this church service, this little bitty, it wasn't much bigger than the choir loft area up here, and I was greeted by the elders, they had cardboard, little cardboard name with a ribbon hanging down it, and they greeted with, with these smiles, and the worship service was already going on, now I'm in the slum, I'm walking through the slum, I cannot tell you the smells and how awful it was. And these people who were living in dire poverty in slums. Houses made out of cow manure with straw mixed in it. And I am miserable. It had been raining and I'm wet and I'm miserable and I I had been sick. I hadn't felt well. And I'm going into this and I walk into this service and I begin to look around. And in this service with these beautiful Indian faces and their bright shining eyes singing with smiles on their faces and joy in their hearts. And you could just sense it and feel it. Unlike sometimes when I preach at churches here. And all I get are scowls and negativity. But I'm going to tell you there, it was a joy. It was a joy. Now I want to tell you about my heart. My heart was in there and I was like, hmm. Don't these people know how bad this is? And they had joy. It was at that moment in my life that God taught me that lesson. That joy is something that God produces inside of us that's not based on external consequences. God doesn't always change our circumstances. Listen to this carefully. He doesn't always change our circumstances, but he changes our attitude towards them. We begin to see things differently. 
And when the gospel comes to bear upon your life and you begin to see, even in your difficulties, even in great affliction, you can experience inexpressible joy. And I'll tell you why. Here's the great secret to it. Because in the presence of God, there is excessive joy. When we come into his presence and we delight in him for who he is, we find this joy that is deep within us. You see, it's very different from happiness. Happiness is something that's dependent upon circumstances. Joy is very different. Joy is something that happens inside of us when we delight in God for who God is. And here were these people living in this terrible affliction, but they had joy. Listen, I long for that for this church. I long for that for the church in this country. That God's people find joy again. Even in the midst of the difficulties that we're going through. That was the first effect. Now, the second result was this. In spite of the extreme poverty that they experienced, they themselves, it produced God's grace, actually produced in them rich generosity. They became generous. In fact, the gospel of grace always produces generosity in people because the gospel itself is excessively generous when we experience God's generosity freely given to us we cannot help but be generous ourselves listen it's like forgiveness you see do you remember the Lord's prayer we pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors the one petition in the Lord's prayer that Jesus addresses is that one and he said you remember afterwards He said to his disciples, he says, if you don't forgive people all this, how do you expect your father in heaven to forgive you? Now, why did he say that? Because of this, the gospel brings about forgiveness. And when God forgives us and we realize we're forgiven people, how could we not become forgiving people? Dare we not forgive? The same is true with generosity. When we see God's generosity to us, All the blessings that we have and the greatest blessing of all our salvation in Jesus. When we look at this excessive generosity, how could we not but be generous people? Where we see ourselves and everything that we have and our church, we want to give ourselves away. That's the way of the gospel. You see, the gospel changes the affections of our hearts. We fall in love with Jesus and desire to give everything we have to him out of love and gratitude for what he's done for us. I don't have time this morning. You're an example of this. Go to Mark 14 found there in Mark's gospel where it's about the woman, the very poor woman who was in the house where Jesus was there, Simon the leper and Bethany. And she's there and she's so taken with Jesus. She's so moved with Jesus. She loves Jesus so much. And she is a poor, poor person. But she goes back and she finds the, the most precious thing that she has. A costly vial of perfume worth a year's wages for her. And what does she do? She goes back and she dumps it on his head and anoints him. Why on earth did she do that? Because of of gospel generosity. She couldn't take it. She couldn't couldn't resist giving him the best because of what he had done for her. 
And I want you to listen this morning. When I'm talking about this, I am not just talking about generosity with your finances. I'm talking about all of your possessions. Your homes. Are we being generous with our homes? With everything that we have, God has called us to be generous people. It changes the attitudes of our hearts. Now, what's interesting here in the passage is what Paul calls giving here. He actually calls giving a grace in this passage. In fact, two times you find it in verse 6. Now, look at it. So you're, you're seeing it here. Verse 6, he says he calls it an act of grace. He's talking about giving an act of grace. If you go down to verse 7, he calls this grace of giving. Now, here's the problem. See, for most of us, most of us think that giving is an obligation. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that it is a grace because it is the work of God in us that compels us to be generous. And I want to give you a key understanding about the gospel. The gospel works from the inside out. It's about an inward change. It moves us from selfishness to generosity. It's a change internally. Religion, on the other hand, is about the outside in, and religion never works. It's not until you have that internal change, that change inside of us, and that's the power of the gospel. The gospel comes, and it is a power that changes us from the inside out. And thus what Paul is saying is that giving is an opportunity to respond to God and not merely an obligation. God's grace frees us from our selfish tendencies and motivates us to be generous with our time, our talents, our treasures, and all that we have. And that was the case of the Macedonians. That's why he picked them. And it was amazing. Look at verse 3 with me for a minute. This, this, this verse amazes me. Verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3 says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now look at that for a minute. They gave as much as they could and they gave beyond their ability. Look at it. They gave as much as they could. Now, now let me tell you what I'm thinking. And you've got to bear with me this morning. You know, early in my ministry, I used to be scared to death to speak about this subject. Because I knew people immediately got defensive when you start talking about giving. Oh, they're there in the church talking about giving again. I used to believe that. Until I learned later that I was, if I didn't preach forcefully and biblically about this subject, that I was robbing my people of this blessing. Because it's a blessing. They gave according to their ability. What's he talking about there? I'm pretty sure he's talking about the tithe. The tithe is a principle that runs from Genesis chapter 14. Check me out. Genesis 14, Abraham was the first person to, to give a tithe, goes all the way through the Old Testament and comes into the New Testament. And there are some people who say, well, wait a minute, that's Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. 
It goes all the way through, consistently through the New Testament. Jesus actually affirmed the tithe. If you want a reference, don't have time to show it to you this morning. But go to Matthew 23, 23. He corrected the Pharisees. The Pharisees were tithing, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And Jesus is correcting them there. But he says, you're not to neglect it. He doesn't do away with it. Tithing is a basic principle. It means 10% of our income. And God puts a claim on that first 10%. He says it's holy and it belongs to him. Write it down, Leviticus 2730, and you'll read that. So they were doing that. They were giving this tithe. But now here's what I don't want to focus on that. I want to move to what it says next. They gave beyond their ability. Here is the dimension the New Testament adds. The New Testament does not take away the tithe. The New Testament adds a new dimension. Sacrificial giving. They gave beyond their ability. They made a sacrifice to give. Why did they do this? Well, I want to show you this. This, this even, look, this even gets more fascinating as you develop this. Look with me at verse 3 for a minute. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the saints. Now, a couple of, couple of phrases in there. They urgently pleaded with us. Some of your versions actually say, begging us. Now, I'm going to be real honest. been a preacher a long time. Can't say I've had too many people coming up and begging me to give. These people begged to give. Let me tell you what I think was happening. Paul sent Titus. He says, Titus, we should go do a follow-up with these churches in Macedonia. They say they want to give, so let's go do a follow-up with them. So Titus goes to these churches, and he sees their poverty. He sees their affliction. And I'm sure he said something like this. I'm reading between the lines, but I think this is what was happening. He says to him, look, I understand. You're going through these terrible times of affliction. I see your poverty. Look, I know you can't give. Will you just please pray? Look at what they did. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded. Why? Because they saw that it was a privilege. Do you see it? Look at the verse. It wasn't an obligation. It was a privilege. And they saw what an incredible privilege that it is. And so they responded willfully to the opportunity and they responded Cheerfully to the opportunity. If you go to chapter 9, remember I told you 8 and 9 go together. Go to chapter 9. Look at this verse. Love this verse. Each man should give just as he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves what kind of a giver? That was really cheerful. Thank you. Let's see it here. What kind of a giver does God want? There you go. Now let me tell you about that word. This is so fun. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's the word from which we get our word hilarious from. Now, I see some, I actually see some smiles. That's what we're talking about. When we give, we smile. It's cheerful. It's cheerful. It's not under compulsion. We don't do it reluctantly. Listen, God doesn't need our money. Come on. But what a privilege it is for us to give. These people understood gospel generosity. They understood what Paul goes on to write. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And aren't you glad that God didn't sow sparingly when he gave his son? He spared not his son. 
That's the generosity that I'm talking about. And you see the real secret here is found in the fact that they first gave themselves to the Lord. Look at verse 5. And they did not do as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Gospel generosity flows from a heart that's deeply committed to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you this. I, I get, look, I promise you this. If you're offended by what I'm talking about this morning, you don't have your priorities right. Because instead of being offended by it, we ought to be saying, preach it, preacher. Because you understand the principle. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's my question this morning. With all of your possessions, are you first of all using them to honor and glorify God with him? Are you? Are you seeking him first? You see, that's what they were doing. They committed themselves to the Lord. And this applies to all of our possessions, our houses, our possessions, our money. Jesus said, no one, no one can serve two masters for he'll either hate the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And let me tell you why he said that. Because mammon, money, becomes an idol. And we love it more than we love Jesus. And I guarantee you one thing, your checkbook will show what you love. It will show what you love. And there are people who love money more than they love Jesus because that becomes the idol to them. When we give graciously like this and cheerfully like this, God honors generosity. Look with me quickly at chapter 9, verse 11. Look at the verse. You will be made rich in every way. Now look at the verse carefully. See, there's so much of these verses. You will be made rich in every way so that, you see the so that? Why does God bless us like he does with material things? So that, so that what? You can be generous. Do you see it? Have you ever thought that way before? You have what you have so that you can be generous? Do you realize what we, we could be those people born in that slum who have nothing, but God has chosen to put us here, and we have been made rich in every way so that we can be generous people. And I'll tell you this, God deeply honors generosity from his people. And that's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. But let me also turn it around the other way. God is honored through the generosity of his people. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13 says, Because of the service by which you proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with Him. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying when you become generous with other people, they praise God because you've been generous, because you've shown them what the gospel is. It's, that's a whole different way of thinking about giving. This is the gospel perspective. Well, let me rush to finish up here. The source of grace is God. The evidences of grace that God is at work in us are inexpressible joy and generosity. But the supreme example of grace is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Oh, this 9. You've got you've to pay attention to this one. This is such a powerful verse. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Though he was rich, he's the king who owns everything, yet he became poor. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It's not talking about the fact when he was born there was no room for him in a, in a manger, in an inn. It's not talking about the fact that the birds of the air have their nests and the foxes have their holes in the ground, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As far as we know, Jesus never owned a home. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the poverty he went through on the cross. When they're on the cross, he gave up everything, 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 everything. Do you remember even his father's love and acceptance? Do you remember what happened on the cross when he who knew no sin became sin for us? Do you remember what he said? My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I want to tell you, that's what this verse is talking about. Everything. Even the acceptance of his father for him because he became sin for us then. He became poor for you and me. And let me tell you this. When we understand this, how could we not be generous? Isaac Watts got it right. When I survey the wondrous cross, we're going to sing it here in just a second. But in the last stanza of it, Isaac Watts got it. And this is what he said. Were the whole realm of nature mine? If I owned everything, everything was mine. The whole realm of nature was mine. That were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. In chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says, See that you also excel in the grace of of giving. See that you excel. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That's too small. I've been called to give him my all. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning, how we long for gospel generosity. How we long this morning for your, for your, the power of the gospel to come into our lives and change us. We're selfish people and we confess it. Forgive us. Help us to learn generosity. Because Jesus said it's far more blessed to give than to receive. We miss so many blessings because of our selfishness. God, thank you for gospel generosity, for what you did for us in Jesus. Help us now to be generous people. Help us to excel in this grace of giving. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.